Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freckled Foodie and Friends, a podcast focused on making healthy living approachable, hosted by yours truly, Cameron Rogers. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. It's Cameron here. I am joined remotely with Jerome Nathaniel, who is the Associate Director of Policy and Government Relations over at City Harvest. Um, I was put in touch with him through his wife, who is part of the Freckled Foodie family, and mentioned that he would be interested in potentially coming on here to talk a little bit about in general, what City Harvest is doing during COVID-19 and quarantine, but also on the racial discrepancy of COVID-19, given how it is impacting different races so much in a greater impact. So welcome, Jerome. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to have you. I also love when I have males on here because it's not as often <laughs> and I do have like a bit of a male following. And so I think just bringing both genders to the table on the show is always important as well. Um, so to kick things off, how would you define success? Um, you know, for me, I, I, I would say success is embodying the values of my family or doing right by my family and my culture. And I mean, I think that could be defined or manifested in many different ways for different people and different groups, depending on the values of your family. But, you know, for me, it's if I could look back and say, you know, that makes my parents or that makes my neighborhood proud, then, you know, if I, I've done right. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with that. Um, and I'm curious, I guess, if you can put it in your own words, kind of just what you're doing right now at City Harvest. And we do want to be clear that you're going to provide your insights and personal experience, and it's not really on behalf of City Harvest as a charity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, you know, just to take a step back, you know, I definitely want to talk about all the City Harvest work and Mm -hmm. know what we're here for today. But if we could just take, you know, maybe 10 seconds even just to have a moment of silence for uh, George Floyd, I think that, you know, would mean a lot for me. Let's do it. I agree. Yes. Thank you for that moment. Thank you. I I really should have thought of that to begin with. Um, So thank you for bringing that up and doing that with me. And I do want to mention to everyone that's listening, um, we're recording this right now on a Monday that the past weekend has been incredibly emotional, specifically for Black people, given everything that has happened. Um, It's been 
a long time coming right now, but mm-hmm. with this Black Lives movement, um, the protests have been really, I mean, they've taken over every news outlet, everything yes. that is the focus right now, which it should be. Um, and I really want to thank you for you taking the time, given everything that is happening right now. Yes. And I'm sure the emotions you're going through to be here with us and to have this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I'm located in, in Bed-Stuy from East New York. So, you know, me and my wife are very much in, in the heart of, of a lot of the response that's happening here in mm-hmm. New York City. So it's something that we hear, we see, we walk with and that I've lived with my whole life. So it's, it's definitely hits hard at home and, you know, we can unpack it a little bit more today, but it's, um, and unfortunately it's groundhog day for a lot of people of color yeah. uh, in this country. Yeah. I, um, was having a conversation with someone and I, I was talking to my sister and I said, like, I am so emotional because I'm so angry with myself that, I've, this has always been something I've been aware of and I've obviously cared of, but I've never really put in the time or effort to do the work and educate myself further. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, like, I haven't been able to sleep for the past three days. And then I get mad at myself because I don't deserve anyone's sympathy or tears or caring. Like the feelings I'm feeling are people are the emotions that people of color, specifically black people right now feel every single fucking day. Yeah. So who am I to be like, Oh, I can't sleep because now I'm doing the work. Like these are emotions that weigh heavily on black people's minds from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed. And I think that's a big realization for specifically white people right now who are leaning in to do the work and to educate themselves as just a first step. Since this is a lifetime journey, it's not just Mm going to change overnight. Um, But I think that was a big realization that I'm hoping people are having that the emotions they're feeling are ones that, are felt every day by people of color, specifically black people with what's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's micro, it's macro, it's, it's internalized, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the articles I read actually that I talked about on my stories, but was by the Washington post and it was what white Americans can learn about racism from the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you read this piece, but this is really what sparked my interest in the racial discrepancy of coronavirus and its impact on different races. And it was eye-opening for me because the article, and I'm going to paraphrase it, and I'll link the the full article in the show notes, but it was saying this fear that people are having of leaving their house or their fear for the security of their job or their health are emotions that people of color feel on a daily basis. And that's what racism feels like. Yeah. And I mean, in many ways it's exasperated and it's uh, felt even more uh, amongst people of color who really comprise of the vast majority of essential workers in New York City. So this, yep. you know, sheltering in place thing is is not for everyone. <laughs> yes. And I also had that debate where I felt guilty that I was relying on, for instance, like instant car- Instacart or Postmates or Seamless for doing grocery shopping. And I was like, why am I relying on all of these other people? I should like, I'm fine. I'm a healthy young person. I'm not at high risk. I should be also going to the grocery store. But then I had a few messages that were like, well, also on the flip side, the people who are doing this work, this is their job. And with unemployment where it is right now, like they need to be paid more than maybe I do. So then should I give them the job or like hire them to be making the money that they need to be making through their job? Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely 
very complex. I don't think there's any, you know, silver bullet on something like that because, you know, you're trying to balance public health with, you mm-hmm. know, essential activities or tasks and, you know, just also caring for the community and your brothers and sisters. So, I mean, I think everybody from all walks is, you know, sort of conflicted with something like this. Yeah. And one of the statistics that I'm sure has been updated, but I had the article in front of me, was saying um, that the black counties account for 22% of all counties, but have 52% of coronavirus cases and 58% of deaths from COVID-19. So it's very clear that Mm -hmm. black people are being impacted way more severely by COVID. Um, And is that something that you can speak to from work you've done Mm -hmm. or what you're seeing? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, you know, I think it's, I know I jumped around a little bit, but, no, that's uh, fine. That's you know, I'll take a, yeah, I, I could take a step back and first answer your first question about what city harvest is doing or what we're seeing. Um, yeah. and then, you know, I could dive a little deeper into some of the layers of the racial disparities and COVID-19 food insecurity. And, you know, we'll probably find that that story sounds near identical and you can almost not even use the word COVID-19 once. You might think I'm telling the same story about why okay. food insecurity affects people of color more, why COVID-19 affects us more, why criminal injustice affects us more. It's really that same story rooted in racist, uh, racism and um, a system mm-hmm. that was built and evolved from our histories, uh, our country's history of slavery uh, in many ways. Um, but so for City Harvest, uh, we've been around since 1982. So it's been about 38 years since we've been doing this work. And we've been rescuing or picking up surplus food, donated food or mislabeled food uh, from 2,500 different uh, retailers and donors. That includes farmers, farmers markets. For instance, the farmer might not want to drive all the way back up to the Hudson Valley with his leftover produce. So he's mm-hmm. donating that to City Harvest. So City Harvest picks up that food from all those donors. And then with a fleet of 22 trucks, we're delivering that food free of charge to a network of 400 different pantries, soup kitchens, shelters, and emergency food programs across the five boroughs. So we've been doing that work well before COVID-19 and 1982. So you can imagine that we've seen things like natural disasters like Sandy, uh, things like financial disasters with the Great Recession, public health Mm -hmm. disasters like COVID-19. And honestly, I think more important to remember is that we saw this um, four or five months ago when we had record prosperity in the economy. There were still 2.5 million New York City residents that were below the self-sufficiency standard, meaning that they didn't have adequate income to afford their groceries and afford childcare, transportation, housing in this expensive city. So before and after COVID, City Harvest was still moving a lot of donated food to families in need. Uh, But what we found after COVID-19 is that we went from having a projection of donating 64 million pounds of food to pantries and soup kitchens to serve 1.2 million New Yorkers. And in just a matter of three months, that projection shifted so that by the end of June, we would have delivered um, some 81 million pounds of food um, to well over 1.2 million New Yorkers. We're Mm -hmm. We're still trying to assess the need because we know that as unemployment projections go up, food insecurity right. goes up. 
So we don't even know what's going to be the full scope of the need, how long it's going to take to recover. But what we do know is that we've um, had to essentially uh, turn food over and donations over a lot quickly to meet up with that demand. And we're still trying to meet that demand because there's people who've never been to a pantry or soup kitchen, but are going Mm -hmm. to the first time um, during these times. And there are families that were already going that need more and are making more trips and are missing out on school meals because school is closed and New York City school meals is second only to the U.S. government in terms of the volume of food that they procure. So you can imagine, you know, a lot of the um, the arguments and debates that were happening about closing down schools. It wasn't a silver bullet. It wasn't just about, Mm -hmm. is it public safety? It was, you know, are children going to eat? Uh, Are parents going to be able to afford childcare? Uh, these essential workers that are going to work until the city sets up subsidized childcare or these different sort of learning centers, which they have, you can't shut down schools. So, you know, that that's sort of where that intersects with what we were seeing with the need with food and also with uh, the dilemma about how to approach sheltering in place and shutting down different places. Um, so, you know, we're continuing to move food and, and I'm sure you might've saw coverage that um, a lot of pantries had closed down during the height of the pandemic yeah. in March, April, May. Uh, we have 400 pantries on, um, I don't want to say a good day, but on a normal day, mm-hmm. uh, but about, you know, as many as 90 of those shut down because they couldn't meet up with the demands of social distancing and the CDC guidelines, uh, because a lot of these programs are ran by seniors and people that are medically fragile themselves, mm-hmm. or because they were going through something themselves. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe they had to take care of childcare because uh, pantries are essential work too, but they also have their own personal lives. So, you know, we yeah. have more people going to pantries and less pantries open. So it was a very uh, unique puzzle we had to address. And th- thank you for all of that mm-hmm. information. I think it's incredibly insightful and educational. And I'm wondering if I were listening to the show, I would be inherently thinking, how can I help? Mm-hmm. And I know City Harvest does not um, accept necessary like food donations unless obviously you're a large farmer's market or grocer or restaurant. So for the people who are listening that are just everyday New Yorkers or Mm -hmm. not, I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, the best thing that we can do is financially donate our funds, correct? Yes, exactly. Uh, You know, uh, monetary donations go a lot further and you could check out cityharvest.org and there's different ways to donate. And, you know, as the Associate Director of Policy and Government Relations, I also want to add, click on Donate and then go right to your right and click on Take Action. And uh, we have a lot of information there about how to advocate because, you know, honestly, until we change our policies and our systems, we're going to keep having long lines at pantries and soup kitchens. Right. And I think that that's something that's so overlooked. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of honestly what we were talking about in the beginning. It's that people might be donating to these charities, but I don't think enough of us are actually doing the actions, exactly. whether that's learning or advocating or using our voice or our platform. And I also want to say that if, you know, once everything with COVID hopefully passes and quarantine is over, I highly recommend also becoming a volunteer for City Harvest. Mm-hmm. It's work I've done in the past. And, it's incredibly eye-opening um, and also really helpful for City Harvest in general. But, you know, whether it's a farmer's market cleanup or you're leading, I, I'm now blanking on the term, but the weekend, um, like, grocery pop-ups. M- mobile markets. Mobile markets. Thank you. Um, so I do uh, – that'll all be in the show notes as well. But for anyone listening, once – coronavirus has passed, I would really encourage you to also get involved with your time, not just with your dollar. 
Yeah. And, you know, just to that point about our mobile markets and really our volunteers in general, I just also think it's important to add that um, during this time, we've been able to hire a lot of temporary workers uh, who have been Mm -hmm. laid off, many in the food service industry, um, to help with our volunteer work, uh, sort of sorting through donations that are in bulk and repacking them into family size uh, bags or meals. Um, because we know that, you know, a lot of people are out of work and they, and we still also need that support from volunteers. So that was a way to sort of give back and also to sort of manage who's coming in and out of our warehouse, because, you know, we know from COVID-19, you want to try to have that same group of people going in and out of a space instead of a revolving door of volunteers. I'm sure that's incredibly helpful for you guys, but also for those workers to now work. Yeah. As always, City Harvest has figured out a way to make good, better. Um, and then in terms of what you're seeing right now, I know you mentioned that a lot of food pantries are closing when there's obviously a higher demand, but what are you seeing in the different communities when it comes to race and the discrepancy of which COVID is affecting different communities? Um, yeah, you know, I think that the story of COVID-19 and racial disparity, like I said earlier, is the same story of food insecurity and racial disparity. So we see mm-hmm. the areas where there's higher rates of uh, a spread of COVID-19 and also higher death rates uh, due to COVID-19 or the same communities that have fat, uh, high food insecurity rates or the same communities that have higher unemployment and are, you know, the same communities um, that are just generally under-resourced or even have less access to healthy, affordable food at their grocers. And even mm-hmm. if there was healthy, affordable food, they lack the income uh, from you know a well-paying job to access those fruits and vegetables that are healthier in their community. Uh, so there's definitely an overlap. Uh, we see, that, like there was an article in, in Gotham that had this interactive map of uh, where they had some yeah. of the highest per capita rates of COVID-19. And um, the top one was actually where I grew up, uh, Ralph Starrett City in East New York. Um, and it also had Far Rockaway, where my entire immediate family moved. Mm-hmm. Uh, Northeast Bronx, again, you know, my, my father's side uh, lived there at some point. So, you know, by no coincidence, these are also areas where we're finding a higher demand for our emergency food programs and where there's higher unemployment rates. So it's, it's no coincidence and I mean, you could almost really tell what is the root cause of both of those realities without ever using the word COVID-19 or ever yep. using the word food insecurity. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that graph. I've also seen there was a New York Times um, graphic that showed like based on people's cell service and like using the cell phone towers mm-hmm. of which areas of New York and Manhattan people were able to leave the heat zone and escape. And obviously with that comes privilege because you have the finances to escape, but you also have somewhere that you're escaping to. Um, And it was a eye opening graphic in the sense of like, Oh wow. All of these people who are able to exit Mm -hmm. the heat zone of Manhattan are only able to do so because of the money they have. Yeah. Um, And I'm sure it was very, it, I'm sure it correlated with the Gotham graphic that I'll find and post mm-hmm. in the show notes that you're mentioning because the people who were not able to escape um, are staying in those heat zones and then they're being largely impacted. And that's where then we know how COVID works and the cluster mm-hmm. effect and that's how it's spreading. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think that media and politicians are doing better about talking about, you know, some of those disparities, but 
you know, sometimes I think that they're happening in different pockets or we're catching different parts of the why, and there's not really mm-hmm. an arc. So, I mean, if you'll let me, I could, you know, unpack some of that. Um, yeah, but go for it. yeah, so some of those things, uh, I think, you know, kind of take it a step back from what is the thing that they tell us to do in order to avoid the spread of COVID-19? The two main things that they tell us to do is to shelter in place and also social distancing. So now Mm -hmm. if we take the example of a community in East New York, um, how practical is that? Well, for one, um, we know that NYCHA, the New York City Housing Authority, which is public housing, has a critical mass of people and that those public housing authorities are generally populated by black and brown communities. So you might have a situation where you have something like the Queensbridge houses where there's 4,000 units and there might be anywhere from one to eight people in one unit because that's the only form of affordable housing they have. So now you have 4,000 units all sort of using the common doorknob and surface area, right? Because they need to get out and do essential things like get groceries at that limited uh, access points in their community. Uh, you're mm-hmm. going to have people go into the same spaces and it's going to make social distancing almost unheard of. And then on top of that, if they're going to work, because we know that 70% of New York City's essential workforce are black, brown and Asian Americans, um, they're going to have to leave their neighborhood. They're going to have to take public transportation, which, by the way, um, the MTA has kind of adjusted without warning at times. So, right. you know, you have a story like my mother's an essential worker. She works for the post office for, you know, over three decades. Um, so she's going from far Rockaway and relying on a bus to get her to Penn Station. Um, if they change that bus, then she misses work. And that was mm-hmm. what was happening to a lot of essential workers uh, in these black and brown communities. So literally it makes sheltering in place and social distancing not practical. And then you mm-hmm. take it a step further of what happens once someone gets COVID-19, right? You really want to make sure that you get to a healthcare place or a clinic or somewhere to get tested. And the fact of the matter is in black and brown communities, um, we don't really have the the best relationship with healthcare. Uh, for, for one, we're more uh, likely to be uninsured. The other, there's just this long history that has evolved since slavery and um different tests being run on people of color that really makes us um, afraid, honestly, of doctors. Like doctors is a scary idea for me. And, you know, I'm healthy and 30, but a lot of these things have been internalized in ways that, you know, I don't realize until I articulate that I'm just very, um, you know, hesitant to ever go to a doctor uh, because of that relationship. And because sometimes the doctor just doesn't look like me and they don't speak the way I speak. So Mm -hmm. if you're getting infected, you might not go to the doctor you're also seeing these these images on the news about the, the doctors or hospitals in your community, like mine was Brookdale, being under-resourced. And there are being trucks outside of these hospitals with bodies inside. So you're definitely afraid that. to go to this place because it's, it's, you know, it's, it feels like a death sentence. And then by the time you do go, and this part I think the media is giving more attention, uh, the death rate might be higher for you because of those underlying health conditions. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you might be pre-diabetic. You might have uh, heart disease or, you know, lung issues because of, you know, honestly, the poor air quality and higher asthma rates in communities of color because they tend to be truck routes and areas where there's warehousing and Department of Sanitation um, um, authorities are based out of these communities of color. Um, so by the time you get to the doctor, 
unfortunately, you're twice as likely to die from COVID-19 because of these underlying health conditions. So that's sort of like the big picture of all those things that are connected. And like I said, mm-hmm. I think they're being told in different pockets. And I think that we tend to lean on those underlying health issues. Uh, but I think it's important to talk about that whole story, essential workers, all the way down from being uh, stuffed in this one building, which is one of the only places where you'll find affordable housing in New York City, real affordable housing. And then it leads to, you know, eventually going to the doctor, and unfortunately, those higher death rates. So there's a lot that happens that goes into it before that even happens. There's so much. And I really appreciate you unpacking that for all of us listening, because I think it was really informative. But I also think that right now, and correct me if I'm wrong, but how important it is for white people who do make up, I, I assume based on like profile pictures of people who DM me, I don't have actual statistics, but I assume that white people make up majority of my community on Instagram mm-hmm. and therefore my podcast listeners. And I think right now, what I have tried to voice to my community is the first step is acknowledging our white privilege mm-hmm. and going from there. And I think what you just said might hopefully be eye-opening for people in the sense of the white privilege has allowed me to be in a house where I have, you said, you know, people, the apartments could home one to eight people, for instance. In that instance, if someone is trying to quarantine themselves, they most likely do not have a room to even shut the door to have to themselves. Yeah. So right there is one. Second one, as I mentioned, we're able to leave a hotspot. And then the third one, just from what you said, the largest one is that never in my life have I ever questioned whether I should feel comfortable in a doctor's office, not Mm -hmm. once in my entire life. And I have spent so much of my life in different doctor's offices, and it's always been something that I go to and seek of answers and hope and actual like change. I'm trying to think of what the word is, but you know, I have such a positive word association with doctors and I've never gone and feared what might happen to me. And I think that's a huge one that you just unpacked for us. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost like same thing with, with cops. And I know that's a little bit different, totally. but everything's about perception and, yeah. you know, all of our perceptions are different, but the dominant society's perception is going to be as soon as fact or truth. And, mm-hmm. you know, for one, uh, you know, a, a cop or a doctor is a hero and I understand it. And for another, it gives this heightened sense of tension, even if you're not doing anything wrong and just minding your own business, it just heightens, right. you know, this tension as soon as there's a presence of, um, you know, police enforcement. Mm-hmm. And I totally agree where majority of white people turn to police as the savior and the people mm-hmm. that are going to fix everything. And I was actually having this conversation with my sister when we were unpacking different ways our white privilege has helped us succeed in our life. And I did do a massive blog post um, this past weekend that I'll also like put in the show notes where I unpack mine a bit, but the whole point of this post is it's all resources for anti-racism educational pieces, not anything that, and I have a whole like terminology section where it's words that we should all familiarize ourselves with. And none of it is my work. Um, I'm trying to provide a space to just put more volume to the voices of black Mm -hmm. people and people of color who have actually experienced this. And my whole thing is I am not the leader on your educational journey because it's not my place to teach anyone because I'm in so, in so much need of more education. I'm learning aside you, but I'm trying 
alongside you, but I'm trying to provide you with the resources to learn from these people. And in that, I was unpacking my white privilege with my sister. And one very, very obvious example for me that I still think about all the time is I was not arrested technically, but I was taken from a party when I was 15 by the police. They broke up a party. Everyone ran. I got like grabbed by the back of my shirt and like put on the ground and eventually taken in the back of a cop car to the station. And I remember thinking I never, I mean, never once did I fear for my life. My whole fear was like, Oh my God, what the hell am I going to tell my parents? Mm -hmm. And I remember being in the back of a cop car and having the audacity to talk back to the officer and ask him why there weren't seatbelts in the back seat. I'm like, this is unsafe. Why aren't there seatbelts back here? And looking back, I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking? But (laughs) it just shows that I, I never once ever would have thought my life is in danger. And the fact that I also got to the police station, called my mom and left without so much of a slap on my wrist. There was no breathalyze. There was no charge. There was nothing. Um, And for me, that's such an obvious moment of the color of my skin changed that entire situation from Mm -hmm. both my perception and the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, I I think so often when, you know, people have those experiences and, you know, they're able to look back, um, I think that it's important to always look back at those kind of experiences mm-hmm. and just realize, you know, I, I think sometimes we have the tendency to automatically think that the word privilege nowadays have a negative connotation, but not unless you make it a negative connotation. If you're I not, agree. you know, looking back and analyzing and, and growing from it, then that's another thing. It's a privilege to learn. It's a privilege to evolve and grow. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And I talk a lot about mainly financial privilege on my platform and, mm-hmm. Every time I tell my story on someone else's podcast of leaving the corporate world to do Freckled Foodie full time, I'm like, I can't tell the story without acknowledging and addressing the privilege that allowed me to make this decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's something I openly talk about. And I think I've, I've gone through phases of guilt over my family's financial status and means. And I've recently specifically come to the terms of my feeling guilt doesn't change anything, but having the privilege and the ability to actually put the money to use and Mm -hmm. connect people who might not have that same privilege or to provide a a space for someone else to have a voice, then it's a great thing because I'm actually doing something good with it. Yeah. Um, And I think a lot of my community has messaged me like I'm feeling similar things that you're feeling in terms of privilege and it's my parents' money. It's not mine. I'm like, okay, well, if you can convince your parents to donate X amount of money to a charity that really fucking matters to you, Mm -hmm. then that's great. Like let's drop in that privilege then and own it and just do something good with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Like there's so many ways we can act. It could be financial. It could be, you know, out there and activating and volunteering and, you know, Mm -hmm. but yeah, just really using that privilege and owning it. Like, you know, I, I own that, you know, there's different levels of privilege. I'm privileged in in some ways that in many ways as a male being cisgendered, Mm -hmm. um, having, you know, a a certain family structure, but, you know, one of those privileges is not my skin tone. And that one happens to be the one that are a lot of the iniquities in our in our country have been built off of. And that's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the division and oppression of, of people of my skin tone. Yeah. And I think right now, like you said, there are so many privileges. I was writing them out yesterday, whether it's your sexual orientation or even like your looks or your body type, you know, there's like thin privilege where you go to a store and you always know that you'll find something that fits you mm-hmm. and you don't have to ask, you don't just 
look for specific stores or, you know, skin privilege. There's so much, um, but finding ways, I think what helped me was sitting down and writing down all of the ways that I experience privilege and Mm -hmm. then figuring out how I can use my platform and my voice to assist in those specific areas. Because it doesn't have to just be for one. It should really, we should be talking about all of them as well. Yes. I'm curious. Um, I know we've talked a lot about your work and a bit about your life, but what is your favorite characteristic about yourself? Um, I, I would say being level-headed or you mm-hmm. know, being able to assess a situation. Um, it's just worked for me professionally, I, I think. You know, strangely enough, if I get like a mid-year review or appraisal, like over the years, I feel like all my supervisors have literally used the same term, cool as a cucumber, <laughs> which sounds pr- pretty specific to have heard yeah, that from like four different people. So, you know, I settled around with it. I'm cool as a cucumber. And <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <It helps. laughs> I wish I was a little bit more cool. I'm a bit hot-headed sometimes. <laughs> I was saying yesterday, I'm like, sometimes I just wish someone when I'm fighting with them, I'm like waiting for them to apologize just so I can go off again on them. Like, that is the opposite <laughs> of being cool as a cucumber. <laughs> Um, and then also I think I would be remiss if I did not ask what it, because as a black male right now, you're speaking to a largely white female audience, um, other than educating ourselves and doing the work and learning more and assessing our privileges and what we can do with them. Is there anything else that you would like to say to the listeners or ask them to do? Um, yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, one thing in terms of like that, that self-education, if I could endorse mm-hmm. one book that I think is almost like the manual for people that are trying to make that shift is uh, Michelle Alexander's uh, The New Jim Crow. And yeah. it came out like 2011, 2012, you know, right mm-hmm. when I was graduating. And it really, you know, it really lays out the systems that start from slavery and evolve to the Black Codes and went to Jim Crow and now the new Jim Crow, the criminal injustice system. Um, and in some ways it also touches on, um, I, I think, uh, a form of slavery and oppression that we kind of skip over, which is uh, redlining, uh, which kind of birthed gentrification. Um, so, you know, a lot of what we see with COVID-19 and the disparities and there being critical masses of people of color and these under-resourced communities are really uh, the child of redlining. Um, mm-hmm. So to just really educate yourself on redlining, because that tells you a lot about New York City, Chicago, and other uh, predominantly black and brown communities. Um, and the other thing that I think is very, very, very important is to have those conversations with family members, friends, and community yeah. members that might be on the fence or might be all the way, you know, uh, right. Or, or, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, in the other direction, um, because, you know, end of the day, like I could get up here and talk all I want is, but it's not a, it's not my responsibility to convince your family and B you're their family member. They're going to listen to you, uh, more than they would ever listen to me, especially if they're not, um, you know, didn't have the awakening yet. So, you know, I think those are two important things. I think that's huge. And I've actually gotten a lot of DMs on that specific point over the past few days. Um, I'm very fortunate that this has been a conversation my family has been having for a while. My sister is married to a black man. And so this is obviously something that we talk about as a family. It's still something that we need to discuss more. I don't think you can ever talk enough about it. But I think that a lot of people have messaged me specifically when it comes to the protests saying, I'm trying to have a conversation with my parents about it and they're just not getting it. 
and the protest is the breaking point where, you know, I think the parents are like, oh, well, they're focused on the stores and all of that rather than the actual root cause of the protests and what's really going on. Yeah. And again, that has to do a lot with what media you're consuming and what channels you're watching. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that is the most important thing after you're doing, like once you're begin to educate yourself and you start doing the work, putting it into practice of calling people out on this. And yeah. I know it's uncomfortable, but like that's the whole point of owning your privilege and acting on it because you, you have the ability to call people out on it without them pulling the race card of like, Oh, you know, if you're, if you're both white and you're like, that shit's racist, you have to stop fucking saying that. Like, then they're going to have the conversation. And I even had this conversation with my husband yesterday where I'm like, I feel so uncomfortable by reflecting back on certain things. My friends have said, that I love these people and I don't think they realize that they're being racist, but I just kind of sit there and I'm like thinking to myself, what the fuck did they just say? (laughs) But I'm not saying anything out loud. And we were having the conversation of moving forward. Like I'm done just sitting there. I need to actually act Mm -hmm. on it and call them out and educate them and explain to them why they can't be doing shit like this. Yeah. Yeah. And and, you know, and I I think, you know, regards to perception, I, I found that, Martin Luther King tends to be the equalizer for even someone who is very conservative or, or far right, mm-hmm. but, you know, believes in their heart that they're not racist uh, or the far left. And, you know, um, I, I think there's like a lot of memes floating around about, oh, he did it and he was nonviolent and didn't right. do yeah. whatever. And then uh, there's like two kind of counter quotes under that. And, and one uh, that I think is very important is that Martin Luther King said a riot is the voice of the unheard. Right. Mm-hmm. And hearing that. And the other is, um, yeah, he was not violent and he still was um, under surveillance by the FBI and he still was murdered. Um, right. His presumably, daughter tweeted. I think, yeah, you can agree by the FBI. So mm-hmm. yeah, uh, I saw his daughter tweet. That was like, why doesn't everyone stop trying to act like everyone loved my father? He was assassinated. Yeah, exactly. I also think um, the daily show had an IGTV that I linked in my post that I, I thought he did an amazing job of explain, really just laying it out simply of if you care more about the businesses that are potentially being, looted or you know the glass windows are shattered right now than the actual black lives that have been killed then you're part of the problem yeah and that just lays it out very simply yeah in my opinion um well thank you so much for doing this and for speaking with us and having this conversation and before we close i do bring it a little bit towards food Mm -hmm. um i ask what the three ways to your heart through food are so it can be as generic of like a food genre or specific as an exact meal from an exact restaurant yeah um i would say one is the food being local um Mm -hmm. i mean i can have a salad and it's just I don't want to say just a salad, but it might just be a salad for me. But as soon as you tell me that the kale came from somewhere upstate, then suddenly like I want to know the story and it tastes like five times better than if I just didn't know it mentally. So isn't it funny how that happens? It's so true. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the other thing is having like surprise meals without me having to like say what I wanted to eat and it's just made for me. So I don't know, like today I might want sweet potato fries, but Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't want to have to, 
say that's what I want, but just kind of like walk in somewhere and it's like, wow, that's exactly <laughs> what I wanted. So just appears in front of you magically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think the other is like, you know, I'm a I'm an avid fisherman, so um, oh, cool. I, I enjoy just you know working for what I eat. Um, you know, even if it's a community garden plot I have here in Bed Stuy, or if it's the fish I caught out in Sheepshed Bay, Brooklyn, uh, it just feels good to say like I was you know, personally a part mm-hmm. of my food cycle. That's very cool. I agree with that. I, I can't wait until I'm out of my apartment eventually later in life to have access to grow a little garden and grow some vegetables and fruits. Yeah. Cause I think there's just something so different about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Jerome. I really appreciate you coming on here and sharing your story and your views with my audience. Um, is there, I usually ask people for their handles, but I know that this is different. So I'm going to plug like City Harvest and everything. And mm-hmm. I'll ask you for a bunch of links if you want to plug anything to put in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. I have tons. Right, well, <laughs> <laughs> good. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Be of healthy. Course. You too. Yep. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode of Freckled Foodie and Friends. I thoroughly hope you enjoyed it. If you could be so kind, I would greatly appreciate a rate and or review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. Currently, this one's available on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please subscribe to make sure you're up to date with new episodes coming at you every Friday morning. If once a week isn't enough of me, please follow along on my most active social channel, Instagram. Find me, my unedited videos, recipes, random rants, and info for all my other social channels on there at Freckled Foodie.